My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. First probably eight years, no capital growth, nothing, just sat there. And then bang, you know, we, we got we got some growth and then nothing again, then you got some growth. So I still got that property actually and uh, we've I've seen it once. You know, I've seen that property once in almost um, almost twenty years. It's pretty funny. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. Taran Sham, and in this episode, we're speaking with the director of buyer's agency Search Party Property, Julian Kosagara. Discover how he got into property from a successful career in sales, in tourism, working in five-star hotels. We'll also hear about his first investment property that he held onto, where there was no capital growth for eight years. With over 20 years experience in the property investing industry, Kusagara is involved in many aspects of the business as a buyer's agent and business partner. I'm a partner in a, in a buyer's agency, a buyer's advocacy um, business called Search Party Property. Uh, we're based in Sydney but uh, we do buy property mainly in the east coast of Australia, big focus on Brisbane for the last few years and uh, definitely doing very well at the moment and obviously Sydney is where I live and my business partner Luke Maroney um, and we also have done quite a lot in Victoria, probably not so much at the moment but uh, definitely see that bouncing back. He's such a great guy, I've heard so many great stories behind what he's achieved for his clients as well so it's great to be part of that business. Yeah, no, he's a good guy and I've, funny enough, we've known each other for a very long time. Uh, going back to another life, when I finished uh, school and uni, I studied tourism marketing and, and I worked in a travel com- big travel company at the time and uh, Luke came in there, I think I must have been in my early 20s and we just became a manager or supervisor of a team and Luke came in as this bright-eyed, bushy-tails, I think 18-year-old, must have just finished HSC and uh, yeah, so we actually met way back then. So, um, you know, I guess you have those gaps in time of life and he went overseas to work and I travelled overseas and, and then just kept bouncing into each other over over time. And actually, I got in my job at another company I worked for uh, many years, 10 years later. Um, and then uh, we bumped into each other again. He was starting a new company called First Time Property Investment um, where he's mentoring investors and that was his first sort of foray into um, business. Um, so I think... He reached out then and we had a couple of couple of chats and had lunch over sushi one day and realized that we've got um, a hell of a lot more in common than just our past around, you know, obviously just love talking about property and, and our journeys. And then uh, we used to meet up, funny enough, every every second week and give blood uh, or plasma, in fact, at the 
Red Cross, and that was our time to spend an hour together every every fortnight on a Tuesday morning. So that's kind of how we developed uh, our friendship again, and here we are now as business partners. When you first met Luke at the beginning, you know, at the first company that you worked in, was he sort of under your wing? As- yeah, he was at the, at the general in, entry level of, of the company. Uh, I don't think he reported to me. I was looking after a different business unit in the business, but definitely part of the greater unit that I was probably 100 people in our in that business area that I was in, and Luke was definitely part of that. But yeah, you know, it was a very social business. Uh, we're all young. We're now early 20s, so yeah, obviously your Friday nights are pretty hectic together. And, uh, you know, I guess Luke was probably just breaking out of uh, of school and, you know, getting into the big bad world and seeing how things happen in the big city and, uh, yeah, enjoying that time of, uh, you know, socialising and drinking and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, it was a fun, definitely a fun time. And, you know, a lot of those friendships are still strong, which is, which is really, really, um, you know, I'm really grateful for that, you know, those friendships have, have stood that long. Used to the duties required in a managerial or leadership role, Kusagara does not only use this mentality in a professional capacity, but also when it is needed at home while raising his daughters. A typical day starts pretty early. Normally, get up at around five thirty most mornings and uh, do a bit of exercise. Either go to the gym or uh, have a home gym where I do some uh, some treadmill work. Uh, then uh, look after the two teenage girls, so it's hard to get them out of bed and get ready for school. So need to get get them out of the house by about seven thirty. So uh, yeah, they get a bit spoiled, get their breakfast made, and uh, make their lunch, and then uh, get them to the bus stop. And uh, my wife and I might alternate that depending on who's going to an office or not. Um, and then yeah, normally get into work, sort of start my day and think about work around seven thirty, eight o'clock. Um, could be either setting up, setting myself up for success for the day, thinking about the things to do. Um, could be getting on, on on calls straight away to do other, you know, fun things like today, what we're doing together, Tyrone, or it could be, um, you know, we do discovery calls or strategy calls with clients. Um, so really getting to that quite early. And, yeah, pretty much uh, that's the day through that. So I kind of break it down, looking after our team. We've got some um, team members um, in Sydney, uh, actually overseas as well in the Philippines, um, and, so, and a couple in Brisbane as well. So there's a bit of team interaction and, um, you know, what we call work in progress meetings just to touch base and see what everyone's up to. And, uh, yeah, talk to Luke most days just to see what we're kind of, you know, we kind of demarcate where what we're doing. And, uh, yeah, it's just uh, it's a pretty hectic day. It doesn't normally end till quite late at night. But, uh, you know, when you love what you're doing, right, As we, it's a classical cliche, but um, time doesn't really, really matter. Sometimes I get to the end of the day and go, wow, you know, I, I feel like I've done a lot, but I can't believe how quick it's gone. It's just like a snap and then like <laughs> day's gone. And I'm like, wish I had more time because there's so much great things to do. Yeah. Particularly, yeah, I mean, yeah, this, sometimes I feel this this headphone is on my head permanently and it, uh, it's part of my, my look and feel nowadays. It's like a baseball cap. But um, yeah, like you said, you, you know, you drop the kids at school at 7.30 or drop them at the bus stop and um like you said, next thing you look at your watch and it's four o'clock and you've got to go pick them up from the uh, the bus stop or the train station again. Like, geez, where did that uh, eight hours go? <laughs> so. Although Kusagar grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney, he was born overseas. With the hopes of making a better life for their children, Kusagar's parents made a decision to move. I guess like a lot of migrants in the early 70s, uh, I think had two options. One was to go to Canada and or come to Australia, which is the, the great land, uh, promised land as they called it. And uh, my mum's sister was already here. So dad came to Australia and had a look around and got a job straight away. He was working in the oil 
sector um, as in an administration role, a purchasing or what we call procurement today. Um, so yeah, he got a job straight away and so brought us, brought the family, three young kids to Australia and uh, left their families and everything behind. So typical migrant story, but you know, worked really hard, two jobs, um, educated themselves further because their their um, degrees weren't recognised in Australia, which obviously in today's world, anyone coming out of India are highly recognised, but back then it wasn't so. Um, you know, very white Australia, obviously early 70s. I remember being the only coloured kid in school right through almost to towards high school, really, from memory. And um, so, you know, I know it's a buzzword at the moment. So, yeah, obviously very racist upbringing, but at that time you don't you don't react because you just got to take it on the chin and um, and it makes you stronger. And, you know, it probably drove me harder in certain things, particularly in sport, which I enjoyed and loved and was quite good at. Um when those sort of things came up during a game or whatever else, it probably motivated me to, to really get my aggression up and, and, and focus harder on what I was doing. So, um, and that was in, sorry, in the, in the western suburbs of Sydney, in a, an area called St Mary's. And then we moved from there, probably just before high school, before I went to high school, I moved to a, a little place no one really knows called uh, Kings Langley, which is in the hills area. Behind where I live, actually, not far. Yeah, that's right. Not too far away. So, yeah, that was a, and went to school there and, uh, yeah, you know, public school, um, but didn't know anything better. Parents were, you know, did as much as they could, always um, bought a house, paid it off, bought a house, paid it off, typical story. Didn't leverage and all the things that you, you and I are going to talk about, property and, and strategies that we talk about today in property investing. But um, I guess that was the nature of things back then. They had high interest rates, you know, um, a typical story where, the, you know, looking after your families back, in, back at home, you know, paying off, and looking after their lifestyles as well, sending money all over the place. I, I definitely remember, um, you know, charitable donations regularly with mum and dad as a kid, always signing checks off and wondering why they're giving money away to everyone when all I wanted was a new cricket bat and new football shoes or something like that. But uh, I guess it's not until we become adults that we appreciate what that all means now. Although his parents weren't particularly wealthy, they were always grateful for what they did have and found it especially important to give to others who are less than themselves. They would instill this compassion in their children from a young age. Yeah, I think I, I remember a quote, you know, but they once when I was a kid asking that question about, you know, can I have some money to get a, get a new cricket bat or something silly like that? And, uh, you know, I think they said to me that you, you've always got to give and help people who are less fortunate than yourselves. And even though we weren't, you know, fortunate and driving fancy cars or big houses or going international holidays, we just felt fortunate we had a roof, we had always had food and we always had good clothes and um, enough clothes, I should say, for, you know, school and things. I didn't have any, like my kids today, and I didn't, I don't, I can't even remember when I had my first Nike shoes or anything like that. It was always the, the Dunlop volleys or whatever we wore back then and Slazenger and things like that. Um, yeah, but it was enough, right, because we were very close, um, very, we were a very social family, so we always had Every weekend, we're always going out to big parties. You know, I guess being part of an Indian community as well, you're always out there and uh, enjoying enjoying the food and the fun and the festivities. Um, so, yeah, it was always a, quite a social upbringing. So it was uh, definitely um, something I look back on to very fondly. When his family made the big move from India to Australia, it was a difficult transition to say the least. This was not only because his parents were coming to a new country with no jobs and no money, but they also had to bring along their three children under the age of five. I think I just turned three or just under, just around three, coming at three, yeah. So uh, I'm now, 
Yeah, yeah. My younger sister was, I think, 18 months. There's a couple of years different between us. So, and then I had, a, I have an older sister as well who was five. I think she had a fifth birthday before we left. So, yeah, so there were three, you know, three kids under five basically coming to a new country with no job, no money, because obviously everything they had had to, had to be left overseas. So they couldn't, you know, bring the money with them at that back in those days. So, um, yeah. Um, and and mum and dad had a very affluent life back, back there. It was a, um, things are going really well for them. But, um, you know, they make these sacrifices for the, the good of their children. And I guess um, where they were living at the time, where they ended up because of work um, in, in, in Karachi, you know, things started to change there due to, you know, new obviously partition and then um, some, you know, religious changes in, in the country. And um, um, so I guess they figured it was a, a better place to bring up our, our, the children in, in, in Australia. Coming up after the break, we hear about how in the beginning, Kusagara struggled to find out exactly what it was that he wanted to do. All he knew was that he needed to get a job. I went into the city and every day in a suit and tried to knock on doors and look for a job and um, bumped into someone. Actually, I met at a wedding a month or so earlier and she said, what are you up to? I said, um, not much, just looking for work. We learn about how Kusagara managed to get accepted into an exclusive management training program at a company he worked for which was quite interesting because I think the four or five people on that program are all either sons of someone or, you know, their dad was the head of Qantas or the head of Ansett and um, had a little bit of influence maybe. How he managed to gain some growth in his first property purchase, which remained stagnant for the first eight years. So over that time, then it started to get some capital growth. We took a little bit of money out of it over time too to leverage that and, and buy other properties. Um, but then, yeah, as, as that started to, to taper out and get that capital growth, it, it turned positive and now it, it does very well. And that's up next. I'm Taran Sham and you're listening to Property Investory. Hey, property investor. Is your cash or equity currently earning you 1% to 2% per annum sitting in the bank? What if I said to you that you can do better? To find out more, simply register your interest to become a money partner at propertyinvestory.com. Right now, there are great opportunities in the property market and I'm looking for money partners who want to invest to get a high return with low risk on their money for 6 months. Register your interest by visiting propertyinvestory.com. With parents who always strive to offer a better life for their family, Kusagara learned about the importance of achieving whatever it is that you want in life. Now, after a devastating turn of events, this was made all the more clear. So yeah, so dad was more at administration, um, management sort of roles. At, uh, he worked for Burma Shell, a big oil company, um, and then came and worked for Castrol and basically worked two jobs all his life, right, back in those days. So I got to yeah, so then he was working in, in Castrol here in Australia as a purchasing um, manager and sort of heading up the purchasing and buying area, um, so, you know, buying big oil tins and all things like that for, for, for the company. And then mum was, um, she did a degree in teaching but then came to Australia and got into more administration roles and worked for the public service and then, yeah, worked her way up through there and actually started to study law but then unfortunately got quite ill in her late 40s and with motor neuron and... Uh, yeah, I thought she passed away, you know, three or four years later. So, yeah, didn't get to achieve, I guess, all her dreams and goals. Although Kusagara admits that he didn't get the best results after finishing high school, 
He was determined and was adamant about getting a job, following his parents' hard-working footsteps. A lot of kids probably enjoyed or had dreams of uh, playing sport at, at a high level, which was never really going to happen. But you know, you, you like to you like to have those dreams. Um, and you know the usual things that comes into the mix of the teenage boy, other <laughs> uh, influences. Um, and then went to yeah, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, so I actually studied accounting for two years uh, because you know you're, you're Indian, you should become an accountant. Well, why not? It's either engineer or accountant. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely didn't have the intelligence to become a doctor. Um, so yeah, did accounting for two years, and funny enough, um, realized I had a personality, so I couldn't really be an accountant. So I, uh, I left that after two years. And um, but what I did enjoy was the business side of that that um, that course and degree, you know, around uh, I was, you know, which made sense. I was good at I did three in economics at school and did very well at that. It's about the only subject I did really well at, and so it kind of made sense, right? Once you realize and you start studying that, I liked marketing. I liked business, I like commerce, I like economics, I like talking about companies and how they work and the machinations of building businesses and and uh, rather than studying P&Ls <laughs> day in, day out. So, yeah, so then I left and I didn't really know what to do. It was actually at that recessionary time in the early 90s, the recession we had to have under Paul Keating, interest rates were high. Yeah, so like 20%, wasn't it? Some crazy, yeah. That's why they couldn't leverage, right? They had to buy the house, pay it off somehow. Um, so yeah, so no, I remember just going to the city for interviews, trying to get, maybe I thought, yeah, maybe I could, maybe I'll try to keep doing accounting. But I said to my dad, you know, obviously being a ethnic background, you know, you, you can't just stay at home. You've got to work, son. And so I went in, um, I always had part-time jobs always, but just, you know, full-time work. So I went into the city and every day in a suit and tried to knock on doors and look for a job. And, um, bumped into someone actually, I met at a wedding a, a month or so earlier. And she said, what are you up to? I said, um. Not much, just looking for work because I'm going to pause um, my accounting degree at the moment. And, um, yeah, so then I joined that, as I mentioned at the outset about Luca, this travel company as a courier, like the mailboy, <laughs> running around the city dropping tickets off. Back in those days, a ticket was actually a paper ticket, not a uh, uh, something on the internet, not an app. <laughs> so I ran around delivering this company. I worked for was the largest ticket wholesaler in the country. It's a big company called Concord. And, um yeah, did that, ran around the city and uh, I just got, I was quite, I'm quite a nosy, inquisitive sort of person and it probably made sense uh, later in my career and certain roles I went into, but I uh, just started reading everything that I was dropping the mail off to all the executives in the business. <laughs> I'd read the, the journals and the papers, nothing confidential, just, you know, all the, uh, the local local um, industry rags and then got interested in it. So I thought, oh, actually, why don't I go and study tourism and, you know, study that sort of tourism marketing angle because I enjoyed the company. So um, that's what I did, yes. And I went part-time, three nights a week at, uh, out at uh, Ultimo at UTS and um, a tourism marketing uh, degree, yeah. At one point during the five and a half years that Kursagara spent working at Concord, he was given an exciting opportunity when being accepted into a prestigious training management program. It was quite interesting because I think the four or five people on that program were all either sons of someone or, you know, their dad was the head of Qantas or the head of ANSET and um, had a little bit of influence maybe. I'm not sure, they, not saying they didn't deserve the roles, it just uh, had, had a little bit of influence. So, yeah, for me to get that opportunity and be asked to be put on this program was exciting and um, so that way I was moved around the business to get to know a few of the areas and one of the areas I went into, I think the second uh, tranche of the program was in sales and 
I always, I always thought sales guys are always had to be flamboyant and really out there, and because uh, uh, that's what I saw from a lot of salespeople. But I realised that um, it kind of worked for me. I, I'm probably not the flamboyant type, and I'm actually uh, get nervous when I go into in meeting new companies or going to businesses. But uh, I think I'm inquisitive, as I mentioned. I ask a lot of questions, and um, probably a pretty good listener. So I think that helps being in sales if people liked like and trust you they they like to work with you which is probably resonated then from that age all the way through my career yeah wow that's fascinating and i i'm very similar to you i have to admit because i'm i'm quite inquisitive i ask a lot of questions and i I try my best to listen as much as possible to you know see what it is and there are two i think as you said two sides of it there can be people who are outgoing and great for sales you know those are the really I guess, um, outgoing type of personalities and then there are the ones who will sit there and just listen but they actually have a process that they follow and um, I was reading a book recently by, by a guy called Matthew Pollard about the introvert's edge and those people who are saying that he did a study on seem to actually perform exceptionally well in sales because they spend a lot of time just listening and because they're introverts, they don't like to be talking, um, they, the people actually who are doing the talking tend to go okay you know because you're, you're actually listening and understand what we want we actually want to work with you so you know there's there's all these different ways of looking at how sales can actually work and be beneficial for you know the different types of personalities and you know sales theories have changed and, and developed and uh, the machinations of sales have moved around so if you're selling pens or encyclopedias and door-to-door then you have to have a very different type of uh, personality to do that and very highly geared and motivated um, so I guess the buzzword that came through, particularly over the SaaS software as a sales, as a service, uh, um, you know, in the last 20 years is what they derived, derived a term of consultative selling. So that's where you're consulting and you're talking and you're asking questions and what are the problems I need to solve for you? So, you know, again, like you said, you're well-trained and versed to ask those type of questions and, you know, big, huge companies put you through you know, amount, huge amounts of training on how to speak in a certain way and the formula of selling their product. And it's generally in the software industry and sector uh, where you get that consultative selling process. After completing the management training program, Kusagara began to apply those skills gained within the company. However, his career soon started to fast forward and he began weighing up his options. And maybe 24 or so at that stage and felt like I, I sort of, I don't know, maybe outgrown this company into the where I wanted to head. And, you know, the usual case, I don't think I did a, a formal interview. I don't know, well into my 30s, but uh, I, uh, you know, someone, uh, an airline called me, uh, an airline that I used to work with a bit in my in that role, Malaysia Airlines, and the sales manager rang up and said, hey, do you want to have a coffee? And said, yeah, sure, I'll have a coffee and uh, or lunch or something like that and went and did that. And uh, as that turned out to be a bit of a job opportunity and he wanted a, an assistant sales manager. So I, went in, so I went for a couple of interviews there and got that job. Um, kind of a formality. I think he picked me, but I started to go through the HR side of things. And that was a, a really big turning curve, you know, a big airline, very formal, um, shiny offices and, you know, flying around Asia all the time, you know, going to Malaysia all the time it was fun. And I was young and single and obviously had a lot of fun doing that. Um, but as a, in my management training and um, becoming a better leader was a, it was a real growth for me there. Um I came in and everyone in that, I was, like I said, 24, 25, everyone in that company was, um, all the other sales reps uh, were in their, well into their 30s, some into their 50s. And this young guy comes in and says, uh, I'm now your supervisor. So I reported into the sales manager and I was there. And that didn't go down well. And um, 
but you know that that taught me some skills about being resilient and you know having to be strong and say well this is the way it is but you know gaining their trust I guess so they didn't know who is this guy but I guess I learned to gain trust by by leading by example working hard and um, doing the right things talking to people individually getting to know their story and what makes them tick and everyone's individual right not everyone works the same way so I I guess again that inquisitive mindset and liking people enjoying enjoying people's company helped me uh, understand people and understand what they needed to work well with me and vice versa so it's not that uh, wooden stick type of uh, management style that was probably was sort of coming out the back of back in those days um, it was more about working understanding people and uh, working together as a team you know, now that we've got the buzzwords like collaborative and uh, um, all these type of words that are um, you know, pivoting like we heard last year. <laughs> so, <laughs> and it was just getting to know people and we didn't use buzzwords. It was just really treating people as individuals and um, getting to understand how they want to work best. And everyone's a bit different. Some One lady was a mother who really wanted to work really hard between nine to nine to three or nine to four and then to go pick up a son, single mum. And that's okay. She got her work done. She had a great sales um, record and um, always did her reports up to scratch and up to date. So... And there was other people who work differently. You like to have the longer hours in the office and come in a bit later, but work a bit later. And even that's okay, because ultimately we are judged upon um, what we deliver. It would be a little while longer before Kusagar would buy his first investment property. After a few changes in his career and with a slight pay rise, he was finally in the right position to take that step. So once I went through the travel sector, did... Um, Malaysia Airlines, went to work for another hotel, and then I went into the hotel business, um, worked for Shangri-La Hotels, a major five-star hotel company out of Hong Kong, again, a lot of traveling to Asia, and then um, finally, my last hotel job was at Four Seasons Hotel, which is uh, in the city, and the hotel business is really probably developed that professional side of me because uh, I was probably a little bit loose, you know, in industries where you could get away with it back then, there wasn't as much uh, scrutiny around uh databases and reporting and, and technology wasn't quite there yet. Whereas five-star hotels, it was really about, um, you know, very heavily governed on KPIs and achieving sales calls and targets. Um, but also just professional, you know, you'd go into work every single day looking a million dollars in your black suit and your, and your white shirt. And um, almost became a competition to outdo each other in the sales team on how we over-deliver to our clients. So when a client comes in to look at a hotel room, it sounds pretty boring, but they are going to then buy, a, do a conference or they're going to put their, you know, Deloitte, one of my clients would bring in, you know, 6,000 of their 6,000 room nights would come and stay in a hotel with their traveling employees and uh, executives. So you'd want to put on a bit of a show. So, you know, it was always fun to outdo it and making sure the room's set up, making sure you had their logo on the um on the laptop and they walked in, all the lights were on. When they opened up the curtains, it was the opera house staring right at them, making sure you don't get a room that looked down the wrong side of George Street. And then they're really small things, but it all adds up, making sure you bump into the general manager by accident, but you planned it, right? You've told him, I'm coming in at this time. Can you please walk through the lobby and meet my client? Because, again, it, general managers and hotels have a big, you know, a big uh, whole lot of power and a lot of mystique and uh, um it was good to have them introduce them to my clients. And then you go into the restaurant and then you make sure the head chef comes out and he delivers a beautiful meal, you know, with their logo on, on the pastry, that the dessert and out of honey and wax. And so, you know, everything you did was to outdo um, your client and make sure you give them the best experience. So that was something I really, really took me a while to warm up to because it wasn't normal, natural for me, but I, uh, 
it's definitely another building block in my in my makeup as a as a professional that really helped me. So yeah, left that and then sorry, what I was getting on to you said when I bought my first property, then I went into into marketing, loyalty marketing specifically with a Australian company where we rang the ran the bank's loyalty program. So more sort of strategy, consultative sales there. Um, but that's when I bought my first property. So I moved from uh, hotels into um into that loyalty company and got a you know a nice kicker pay rise from that. Hotels great and glamorous and lo- lovely travel to be in faster hotels, but didn't pay as well. So um, moved into the corp into the true sort of enterprise corporate world and yeah had a nice kick to my pay pay rise and uh, yeah thought okay time to invest in property. So I went classical, got introduction to someone nice glossy salesman and told me about this beautiful development, a multiplex development in, in Newtown, Erskineville, um, which I still have. So I was 30, I think, at that stage. He describes what the property looked like and what was being sold to him. Yeah, it was a one-bedroom one apartment. So again, classical story. You buy that, it's got overhead, it's got a lift, it's got tennis courts and swimming pools. So something I would never sell to a client today. But that's my class. And that's, I think most people have that classical story where you get sold to or something. And we bought that. Um, and at that stage, I was with a, my a partner, a girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. And uh, so we ended up buying that together in the end because um, we put both of our names together to get a leverage to loan. Uh, my uh, wife at that time, my wife, had, girlfriend at that time, wife had a, had a, a property as well in, in Roselle. So we were able to leverage that as well to, to assist. And um yeah, classical story. Didn't didn't move for eight years, and you know, quite often I hear people say to me, "Ah, oh, but Sydney's this, or Melbourne's that, or Brisbane's this." And that said, if you look over a thirty-year graph, which we always share with our clients, everything kind of doesn't always move like a beautiful line, right? We'd love to say property moves five percent every year. It does on average, potentially, in most cities, good cities, but uh, it doesn't. It's not a beautiful linear graph, is it? So it's normally a little bit rough. You get the spikes that we've had in Sydney in, say, 17, the most recent one, and then we tend to, to plateau out for a while. It doesn't necessarily drop. Um, it tends to plateau. And so, yeah, for that first property eight years, no capital growth, nothing, just sat there. And then, bang, you know, we, we got we got some growth and then nothing again, then it got some growth. So I still got that property, actually, and uh, we've I've seen it once. You know, I've seen that property once in almost um, – almost 20 years it's pretty funny but you, you don't need to you have property managers and they look after it for you they're professionals and we're busy professionals with children we don't have time to inspect and look after the properties and may change washes and dishwashers and things like that we leave it to the professionals to do so um yeah so that was my first foray into property investing a, a high-rise apartment although this first property purchase now has positive cash flow it definitely wasn't a walk in the park to begin with but it certainly has taught Kusagara a lot and has helped him in many ways with his future property endeavors. Back in those days, it was the classical negative gearing uh, theories that were, were being flaunted and, and made kind of sense if you're earning good money which my, um, yeah, my wife and I were at that time and um, you know, so negative gear and the tax man will help you uh, and then today, the strategy is more of reverse, right? And I think strategies move based on the market factors and back then the market factor was an interest rate that was much higher than it is today um, and Sydney prices were, were getting to move. That sort of high-rise apartment really started to becoming in vogue and you can see those areas started to grow around that area. I mean that development is actually a very solid development and Multiplex being a great Australian builder, um, you know, it has stand the test of time but we've had a lot of 
especially recently, right, the last couple of years. Some yeah, interesting stories around high-rise apartments and building defects as the, uh, the classical term that we've heard recently. So, um, yeah, so over that time, then it started to get some capital growth. We took a little bit of money out of it over time too to leverage that and, and buy other properties. Um, but then, yeah, as, as that started to, to taper out and get that capital growth, it, it turned positive and now it, it does very well. It has never been untenanted, not for one day. We, being close to the RPA hospital, we tend to get good professional people. Um, it's a good starting sort of, you know, it's one bedroom, but it's a good size, got balcony, everything like that. And it's got all the amenities right near Newtown Station, um, right at that crossroad of uh, St. Peter's and uh, Princess Highway and, and King Street. So it's a real buzz area for young professionals. And we, I think the majority of the times we've had doctors, nurses and, and sort of school teachers or people like that coming through and renting that property for long periods of time. So, yeah, it's been – so in that way it's been a – it's been a success, but it did take some time to, to get moving, yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like I, I remember going back more than a decade ago, Redfern. I always could not believe Redfern was going to be a, a popular area in high demand area. I just thought it was, you know, if you if you and I remember, it was very run down. It was sort of an, almost like not the slums, but like just very kind of, yeah, it's just almost like government housing type of area, which it was for a period of time. It was, yeah. It was a bit scary. I mean, growing up, you wouldn't want to enter, go through there at night and things like that. You were advised not to and stay stay away. Um, yeah, we saw that happen to, to Glebe as well in a way, although Glebe has still got, um, you know, some areas there, which is great that the government does this for our community with housing commission and, and areas like that. Roselle, where we lived in Roselle, had housing commission as well, which is, which is wonderful. Um, but back, back, you're talking 20 years ago, yeah, the elements were a little bit rough and it was a bit difficult, but uh, gentrification kicks in um, and gentrifies these areas and the properties start to move upwards. And we've seen that throughout that inner west area, as you know, you talk about Redfern, which did that, but then we go out in that train line out towards, you know, you, you started had to stand more, you went to Petersham's and it started moving out and out and out Lewisham and, and now it's gone as far as Marrickville is so cool and trendy and and now it's young families throughout Marrickville, whereas, you know, going back when we were probably coming through, um, it was very much, a, well, I'm sure I'm a generation older than you, but it was very much, you know, an ethnic area. Julian Kosagara's story continues in the next episode of Property Investory. Join us for part two where we'll discuss the time he spent living and working in India. Well, the company supported us very well. Um, our house, our home that I live in here was rented out for all that time. Um, we were um, well paid. We had all our accommodation, we had drivers, we had all the things that you, you get when you're an expat overseas in Asia. The value of leverage? In the bank at 1%, well, uh, you, you know, put charges on top of that. The bank charge you for holding your money. The next thing you know, you don't have a lot to show for it. So I think leverage is important. And, and it doesn't matter if it's shares or property or whatever you decide to move into, but leveraging is, is important. We hear about why buyers agents are an investment into your investments. I guess that buyer's agent uh, sector is still, people are still grappling with that. Why would I pay someone to buy me a property or do it myself? And that's next time on Property Investory. And if you love the show and are ready to get serious about investing your money to get a low risk, high return, then SMS me your name and email address on 0499881040 to become a money partner. 
Right now, there are great opportunities in the property market and I'm looking for money partners who want to invest their money for a short 6 months. To register interest, text me your name and email address on 0499881040. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.